Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Last week we did Ezekiel chapter 1. That's where Ezekiel received the vision of the glory of the Lord. And um, I have to uh, make a a slight correction from chapter 1. I was putting dates on when Ezekiel chapter 1 was written or when Ezekiel received that vision. And I said it was in 932 B.C., and someone after the church said, are you sure that's the right date? And they said, you know, because uh, Jerusalem was burned in 586 B.C. And, uh, you know, it wasn't too long after um, this vision of Ezekiel occurred that Jerusalem was burned. So that's like, you know, almost 400 years later. So are you sure that's the right date? And I thought, whoa, I must have transposed it wrong. So this week I went back to my source, and my source was uh, the Bible expository, a guy by the name of Carl Henry, a scholar. And I'm looking, I'm like, well, maybe I just reread it wrong. I looked in there and go, no, his says 932 B.C. And so um, I think he made the error, and I just expanded on it or, or uh, duplicated the error um, because Jerusalem was burned in 586, and uh, Jehoiakim's captivity was in 597 B.C., and then it said five years into that captivity was when Ezekiel received that vision. So that would put it at 592 B.C. So, you know, the thing about that, and, you know, I want to be accurate. I don't want to mislead you in any way. But when you think about the message, it didn't change the message at all, I don't think, um, in any respect. So, um, But I always appreciate corrections like that. So, chapter 1, there Ezekiel sees God... In his glory, he has an encounter with God. And um, as glorious as that vision was, it wasn't meant for Ezekiel just to go, hmm, oh, that was cool, and sit back and, you know, kind of reflect on it and and just be enriched in his life. There was a purpose behind Ezekiel receiving that vision. And that purpose is explained to Ezekiel in chapters 2 and chapters 3, which is what we're going to look at this morning. God is going to commission Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was from a priestly line, um, but now he's going to be called into the office of a prophet of the Lord. And uh, so in chapter 1, he is seeing the glory of God, and now in chapters 2 and 3, he is going to hear the voice of God as God commissions him as a prophet to the nation of Judah. So what I want to do is go just step back one verse into chapter 1, the end of chapter 21. And, you know, Ezekiel's seen this, this, this vision of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the four living creatures, all this amazing things. And at the end of the chapter says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And so when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. Throughout the Bible, whenever people encounter God's glory, there's one thing that happens in common with them. They fall on their face before God. Why do they do that? Well, probably because there's an incredible awareness of God's glory in relation to their frailty as humans. Also, an incredible awareness of God's holiness and a realization that, man, I'm a sinful creature. And whatever the reason is, they always, every, every time in common, they fall on their face before the glory of the Lord. So verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 2, this is the voice of the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. 
Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. That term, son of man, I counted it, and it occurs 93 times in the book of Ezekiel. In one sense, it's a glorious title because it's the title that the Messiah is called. The Messiah is called the Son of Man. Daniel, as great as Daniel was of a prophet, he only was called that once in the, in, in the book of Daniel. But Ezekiel here is, is for 93 times throughout this, this book, he's referred to by God as the Son of Man. Um, I think, as I said, it's a glorious title, but in another sense... I think God is also communicating to Ezekiel that a reminder throughout his ministry that he is merely a man. And just to keep him humble, because he saw some glorious things. Remember Paul, in, in uh, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, he had a vision, or at least they think it's Paul. He's, he doesn't say, I had it. He says, I know a man. And everybody goes, well, we know it's Paul talking, or we think it's Paul who's talking about himself. And he saw a vision, and he said, to keep, me from, or to keep that person from being puffed up, he received that thorn in the flesh. I guess it would have been Paul. Anyways, um, received that thorn in the flesh uh, to keep him humble. And so I think in a sense that that's really what is happening here. God is keeping uh, Ezekiel uh, humble. And it says here that the Spirit set Ezekiel on his feet. I think that's interesting because here God commands Ezekiel to stand and then he enables him to stand by His Holy Spirit. You know, that's what God does. He gives you and I commands. He gives you and I instructions of what He wants us to do. But then He doesn't say, well, good luck. Have fun trying to do it. He enables you and I to do those things that He calls us for. Jesus said in the New Testament, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy... And my burden is light. And sometimes we go, you know, but that burden of the Lord, that, that yoke, that, you know, whatever it is in serving Him, it's not light and it's not easy. And I think the only time when it is hard and burdensome is when we try to do it in our own strength in case instead of by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I love that verse in the Old Testament. It says, not by might nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So Ezekiel here, falling on his face before the Lord, it's an expression, I think, of humility in God's presence. And the Bible in the New Testament says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. That's actually a worship song we used to sing back in the, back in the 80s. Um, but it's a truth as well. Verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel to rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. So here he is being sent to the people of Israel, but notice that he also describes them as a rebellious nation. And that word in the Hebrew is goy. And uh, it's a name or it's a term that's reserved for the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? So here they were a nation led by God, which that's what Israel means, led by God. So here's a nation that was led by God, but God looks at them and they say, but that's only in name because they live their lives no different than the pagans, than the heathens around them. You know, in today's day and age, we have people, you might run into them and you might maybe be talking to them and they call themselves a Christian and so often, you know, you hear them say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. 
But, you know, really, a lot of times it's like we have to say, we have to look and go, well, are you genuinely a follower of Christ or are you in name only? Because in our culture today, a lot of people call themselves Christians. But when you look at their lives, they're just, there's a disconnect. It doesn't match. Continues here in verse 3. It says, They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. Here the Lord calls them impudent. That word means hard-faced. And what it means is that they were no longer ashamed of their sins. They were just, they were just un, unmoved emotionally. No longer ashamed. And he calls them stubborn. And that word really means hard-hearted. And basically it means that they were not willing to repent of their sins. And so the Lord is saying, no matter if they respond or not, by the time you fulfilled your ministry, Ezekiel, they're going to know that a prophet has been among them. In other words, they're not going to be able to claim ignorance. You know, it's interesting when you get to the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, and you start reading about during the tribulation time, when the church has been raptured, you know that God still, even in that time when He's pouring out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, do you know that God is still, He's still proclaiming the gospel? There's the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are on the earth at this time sharing the gospel. There's even, if you go to uh, Revelation chapter 14, there's even an angel flying around through heaven proclaiming the gospel with a loud voice to the inhabitants of the earth. Even during that time, God is still proclaiming the gospel so that they are going to be without excuse as well. I look at our nation today. You know, we've been blessed with freedom of religion. You look at some of these other countries and they can't do what we're doing here. You know, there's, uh, I don't know if you read on the news this last week or two weeks ago, uh, in North Korea, there was 80 people that were, ex- uh, uh, that were uh, executed, many of them simply for having a Bible. And, you know, and, and you go, wow, I can't imagine what it's like to live in that kind of a culture. In our, in our culture... You know, I mean, how many Bibles do you have at your house? You know, how, how, many, how many radio programs are there that you can turn on your TV or, or turn on your radio or turn on your TV? You know, there's crusades, there's churches everywhere. Uh, you go on the Internet and, you know, you can find all kinds of stuff about the gospel on the Internet. We've been blessed as a nation. But with that blessing also comes an accountability for the message. There's not going to be any excuses for anyone at the great white throne judgment. The, he who has received much to him, you know, it's going to be required of him. Much will be required of us. Verse 6, And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks. Though they are a rebellious house, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. Notice he says, do not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words, he says twice. And don't be dismayed by their looks. And he describes them as briars, thorns, and scorpions. 
briars and thorns. You know what those are. I mean, if you've ever done gardening work or, you know, work, work with roses or different things, you know what thorns and, and briars are. They inflict pain when you're working the ground, when you're doing gardening. That's why we wear gardening gloves typically. Um, like in the parable that Jesus told in the New Testament, briars and thorns can choke out the Word of God, making it unproductive in our lives. Scorpions. Well, they're extremely painful, and in fact, they can be poisonous. What God is telling Ezekiel here is that he's not giving Ezekiel a false delusion that ministry is going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. The people that God is sending him to, they're impudent, they're stubborn, they're they're not willing to change. But he tells him, basically, don't fear. Why? Because God's going to be with him, and God's going to equip him. Verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. This is so important here in this passage. Because Ezekiel would be working around people that he's described as thorns and briars. Now, thorns and briars are not part of the original creation, right? The Garden of Eden didn't have thorns. They didn't have briars. It was as a result of the curse of sin in the fall in the garden that thorns were produced and briars came up. And God told Adam, you know, up until now it's been easy, but now it's, you're going you're gonna to toil and you're going to sweat because of the thorns in the ground. And the ground's not going to produce for you. It's going to be hard work. And those of you that are, have ever done gardening or farmers, I mean, you know it's not easy work. It's hard labor. And you can get weary and you can sweat and toil working with thorns and briars. Scorpions. You know, I just finished watching this on uh, uh, Netflix, this show, and I've talked about it recently, but um, Out of the Wild Venezuela. I mean, it happened back in 2010. It was a reality TV show. They, they drop nine people off in Venezuela, and they have to hike like 85 miles back to civilization. And they've got three days of, of wilderness survival training, and that's it. And so this show, they follow them. The guy is probably on the camera eating donuts, watching these guys starving as they're going through the desert or through the wilderness trying to make their way back to civilization. But, you know, it's kind of an interesting show. Well, the first night, they get dropped off, and they're all, you know, they've been trained. They're all ready to go. You know, they're all hiking. And they start hiking down this really steep uh, cliff down this on this plateau where they're at. And they end up on a savanna, a grassy area. And they're supposed to, their first night, their first goal is to make it to this cave where they can get shelter to sleep. Well, they don't make it that far. They, may, they end up spending the night in the savanna. And, and it's like, okay, what are we going to do? And there's bugs all around them. So they put uh, mosquito netting on them. And they all kind of just huddle together on the grass there and sleep. The next morning... They start heading out, and finally, the end of that day, they make it to the cave where they were supposed to make it the night before, and they're like, we've made it to the cave, and they get into the cave, and they're like, it's full of tarantulas and scorpions. Now, I don't know about you. I, I've got a little bit of arachnophobia, and so um, if I was in a cave with tarantulas and scorpions, I would not sleep a wink. In fact, I'd probably go back out on the savanna and sleep out there. You know, you, you have to be careful. You can't let down your guard when you're around something like that. A tarantula is not a big deal, but the scorpions, definitely. You can't let down your guard. Uh, you could end up, you know, you have to be careful where you sit down, where you rest. You might even sit on a scorpion. That would not be a pleasant experience. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter warns us, Be sober-minded, 
Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is what I'm getting at. Toiling among briars and thorns are going to weary you. With scorpions all around you, you're never going to be able to let down your guard. You're going to have to always be on the watch. And if you've ever been in a situation like that where you're always, you can't let down your guard and where you're working, you can get fatigued. You can get fatigued just watching out for things. Spiritual fatigue, fatigue excuse me, is going to set in. And so this is so important what God tells Ezekiel. He says, hear what I tell you and eat what I give you. We'll find out in a few minutes that it's the scroll, it's the Word of God that he is told to eat. You see, Ezekiel is going to need to be strengthened for the difficult task ahead. And teachers of the Word, like myself, people in any capacity of ministry, like yourselves, we all need to be in God's Word. We need to be being taught by Him. We need to be being strengthened and refreshed by Him because you can't give out what you don't have. And so it's so important here Because you're going to be doing this stuff, Ezekiel, you need to take part of this food. You need to eat this. Verse 9. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. And written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Chapter 3, verse 1. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. Now, whether that happened literally or is in the vision, I'm assuming it's just the vision. But And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey with sweetness. Notice Ezekiel is to eat whatever is given him. He's not allowed to pick and choose. And in this case, the scroll that he was told to eat in this vision, it had writing on the back and on the front, and it were words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. And he said, you have to eat this. The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 10, likewise, he is instructed to eat a scroll that is handed him. Anyways, Ezekiel eats this scroll, and it tastes sweet like honey. And I, I just think of those verses in, in, the, in the book of Psalms. Psalms 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And in Psalm 119, verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I gain understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I hope you fall in love with God's Word. I, I hope you just, just love God's Word and, and want to be a student of the Word because you are going to be blessed, you are going to be strengthened if you do those things. Verse 4, Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them, for you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of an unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, because they will not listen to me. 
for all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. What an indictment that is on the nation of Judah. God is basically saying, Ezekiel, if I had sent you to the heathen nations, they would respond to the message. They would respond to my word. But my own people won't. It's a sad thing when Christians, they kind of just blow off God's word and they don't, they don't respond to God's word. And, you, and then you see some people that, you know, they're, they're, they're living their lives totally against God's commands. Against, I mean, they're just, they're, they're just you know, the, the worst of the sinners. And they hear God's word and the Holy Spirit gets a hold of their hearts and, wow, they're transformed. And they, be, they just love God's word and they fall in love with it. And some of us sometimes we just like, oh, okay, I'll get around to reading it one of these days. You know, I'm too busy, whatever. God tells Ezekiel, they're not going to listen to you, Ezekiel, because they don't listen to me. John, or Jesus said almost the very same thing in John chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, he's speaking to the disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep also keep yours. But all these things they will do on you, do to you on account of my name, because they do not know me, excuse me, they do not know him who sent me. Jesus said, hey, you know, they're going to persecute you, but it's not you they're persecuting, they're persecuting me. Because of me, it's because of my name. And if you, you know that as believers, sometimes, you know, you can talk with people about God and they'll, you know, they won't get offended, but as soon as you start talking about Jesus, all of a sudden you're offending people. Verse 8. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you, and hear with your ears, and go and get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they had to learn when I started out as pastoring this fellowship. I heard it over and over again, and I think it hopefully it finally sunk in. Don't apologize for the word of God. You might have to give some pretty hard stuff. You might have to speak some very uncomfortable things or things that are not popular in this culture, but never apologize for God's word. And it was an important lesson that I needed to learn. And I think all of us need to learn that. Verse 12. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice. Blessed is the glory of the Lord from, this, from His place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another and the noise of the wheels beside them and a great thunderous noise. Now we talked about the four living creatures uh, last week in chapter 1, verse 14. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. It says here, Ezekiel went in bitterness. That word means heaviness, chafing, discontentment. It says that he went in the heat of his spirit. That means rage and hot displeasure. Displeasure, excuse me. Ezekiel was probably angry 
over the stubborn rebellion of his people. But I think it's more than that. I think he was also chafing at the idea of being called to confront them. Upset that he had been chosen to be the bearer of bad news. I don't think he was too thrilled with the calling that God gave him. I mean, after all you're describing, you're going to be going to, you're going to be among thorns and briars. You're going to be among scorpions. You know, don't be afraid of their faces. They're not going to listen to you. I mean, can you imagine what a calling that would be if God said, hey, I'm going to send you to people that are not going to even listen to you. They're never going to respond. They're stubborn, but I'm sending you anyways. Oh, oh Lord, I'm excited to go. <laughs> I can't wait to get on the mission field, you know. But that's what Ezekiel was called to. And so, you know, I can understand that. I would feel the same way. I don't want to go. I don't want to have that. I mean, who wants to have that kind of a ministry? But he says something here. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. That calling that God had placed on his life was so strong, he couldn't resist it. I'm just called to do this. i got to do this. You know, sometimes I've heard people feel like, you know, I feel like I'm called to this or that. And, you know, and and I... I'm not God, so I can't say, well, you're right or you're wrong. I, I just go, oh, okay, that's cool. But when I really feel that I know that people are called is when they, through thick and thin, they just respond. It's like, you know what? God's called me to do i got to do this. And they, they, without, you know, even in the midst of opposition, they go and they do something. I say, oh, okay, God's probably really called them because of their response there. Ezekiel's calling, or God's calling on Ezekiel was so strong that he couldn't resist it. Verse 15, Then I came to the captives at Tel Abib, who dwell by the river Chabar. And I sat where they sat, and remained there astonished among them seven days. So remember Job, when, when, when all those terrible things happened to him, and his three friends came to try to encourage him. And the first thing that they did, they basically just sat down with Job for seven days, and they didn't say a word. That was the best thing that they did after they started saying words then it went downhill from there but you know they were just basically silent among them well Ezekiel here is back with the people he sat with the people that he was being sent to and he remains among them silent for seven days and it says that he was astonished among them for seven days he sat where they sat and I think what this is saying is that up until now maybe Ezekiel didn't realize just how bad their spiritual condition was you know, you get kind of used to the culture around you, you, get used to things around you, and you don't realize how bad things are. But God points out to him, this is how I view them. And now he's, his eyes are open to the condition of the people around them. And I think now the seriousness of their spiritual condition hit him, and he just was sat there in silence for seven days. Verse 16 now it came to, the pa- came to pass at the end of the seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. Now a watchman in that culture in those days was someone who was stationed on the city wall and they basically day and night guarded the city. They kept a lookout for approaching enemies. And so Ezekiel is being appointed a spiritual watchman for the nation. He was to hear the word of God, and then he was to proclaim the word of God to warn the people about their impending judgment. Verse 18, 
When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul." See, a watchman on the wall was not responsible for the actions of the people in the city. His job was simply, his responsibility was purely simply to be vigilant and to sound the alarm if he saw something happening. That was his job, just be faithful to deliver the warning. And as a spiritual watchman, Ezekiel was to be faithful to speak God's word to the nation. And if he did not warn the wicked of their sin... The wicked person would die in their sin, but God would hold Ezekiel accountable for not warning them. But he says, but if Ezekiel did warn them and they ignored his warning, the wicked would still die in their sin, but Ezekiel would not be held accountable because he had warned them. He had fulfilled his his responsibility. Verse 20. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you have delivered your soul." Now, the first example was about the responsibility of warning a wicked person. But now in this example, it's, a warning, uh, it's about warning a righteous person who's walked away from the Lord. And he says there, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, which is another fancy word for sin, Ezekiel was responsible to warn that person. And if Ezekiel didn't warn them of their sin, That person would die in their sin. Their righteous acts wouldn't be remembered anymore. But God would also hold Ezekiel accountable as a watchman who failed to warn them. Now, when you read a passage of Scripture like that, it might cause someone to wonder, well, you know, does that mean that a believer can lose their salvation? We've got to remember something here. Ezekiel lived under the old covenant. The old covenant where righteousness was based on the law. We are under the, we're not under the law, excuse me, we're under grace in the new covenant. And your and my righteousness is not based on our performance of the law. Our righteousness is imputed, and that word means to be credited to our account, based on Jesus Christ's righteous fulfillment of the law. It's not based on your and my righteous requirement, or our filling the law, it's that Jesus Christ fulfilled it for us. The focus and the context of this passage is not on that aspect of it. It's on the responsibility of the spiritual uh, watchman. And you might say, okay, so that's the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that responsibility does carry over into the new covenant. Why do you say that? Because Paul refers to it. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is meeting with the, with the elders of Ephesus there, in verse 26 it says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So I, I, I haven't held back anything. I'm innocent of, the, of any blood, basically. 
I'll be honest with you, I am very afraid for pastors and teachers who dilute the Word of God in order to appeal to culture today. It's a very tempting thing to do. You know, you don't want to be controversial. You want to keep the numbers big in your fellowship. And, you know, and, and it's so tempting to kind of water down the message to appeal to the masses. I'm afraid for people that do that, though, because they're not being faithful as watchmen. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, this is not written just to pastors. In fact, it's not written to pastors. It's written to all believers. In verse 17 of Hebrews 13, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So there is a responsibility for pastors today to be watchmen of their flocks. I'm responsible as, as a pastor of this fellowship to be a watchman over this flock. But I believe that responsibility not only falls on me as a pastor, but really it falls on all of us as believers. Be easy to say, well, that's the pastor's job, and I don't have to worry about it. No, it, actually, you do have to worry about it. Because Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort you, brethren, that means all of us here, Warn those who are unruly. That word unruly means to be insubordinate. It's a military term. It's a, it's a soldier who's out of rank. And we're all soldiers in Christ's army. And when you see a fellow soldier who's out of rank, they're, not, they're, they're, they're blowing it somehow, uh, we're to warn them. And then comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. You know, it's easy for us to run, run around and be the religious cops, right? Or the... You know, we can get legalistic and, you know, just, ah, you sinned, you know, and then we can just pounce on people. And we're to be patient and we're to do it in love. And, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's, there's ways that are described in the New Testament for how to, how to handle those kind of situations. But the next question I think that comes up from this passage is how will we be held accountable as watchmen? What does that mean? You know? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, this is not speaking about condemnation to damnation. We're not being judged. Our, our sins were judged with on Je- in Jesus Christ on the cross. So this is not talking about a judgment for condemnation. But nonetheless, according to this passage of Scriptures, you and I are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to stand before Him and we're going to give an account of our lives in the body of Christ. What did we do as believers in the body of Christ? Good deeds done in the body of Christ are going to result in rewards. But notice that Paul says the good or the bad. What does that mean? What if I did bad in the body of Christ? Does that mean I'm going to be punished? What is that punishment? You know, it's not really explained here. This is what I think, and and, uh, this is Pastor Don's just musing. It's not, thus saith the Lord. But I thought about this. What does that mean? This is all that I can think about. You know, standing before the Lord, 
when you and I see Him face to face and we're going to see Him in His glory, all creation around us, multitudes, myriads of people, men and angels and creatures are going to be praising Jesus Christ, saying that He is worthy. And I think if we've lived our lives as Christians in a way where we've just lived, gone after the flesh, where we've lived a life where we haven't been completely surrendered to Him as a believer, I think the realization that we've displeased the Lord, I think that's going to be a punishment in and of itself. I really do believe that. Because, you know, the Bible says when we receive crowns, we just throw them down before the Lord. He's worthy. I mean, yeah, you gave, I worked for these crowns, but they belong to you. And I think we're all going to be there wanting to give God as much glory as we can And if we've lived our lives for ourselves and we have nothing to offer the Lord, I think that in itself is going to be a punishment. In fact, it's interesting because in Revelation 21.4, it says that he will wipe away their tears. There's going to be tears in heaven? Apparently, Jesus is going to wipe them away, but apparently there are going to be some tears. And I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but I think those tears might possibly be, I wish I had done more for Jesus in my life. I'll tell you what, my goal and my aim is not to experience that. My goal is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, there was a time in my life when I was sitting there thinking, what can I get away with and still go to heaven? You know, how can I still love the world and do the things of the world and still make it in? You know, that was kind of my mindset there for for a while there as 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 a young man. I think... That's like walking out on a thin sheet of ice on a very deep lake in late spring. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very shaky ground to be on. But you know, you look around our culture today, just like in Ezekiel's day, there are people who call themselves the children of Israel. In that day, they call themselves the children of Israel, which meant led by God. But God looked at them and said, no, you're goy. <laughs> you're Gentiles. Because you're just like the heathen. You live just like the heathen. And I think today, there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians. And that means followers of Christ. But God who sees their hearts knows the truth about them. Paul wrote in Galatians 5.19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if we are practicing the works of the flesh with no desire to turn away from them, as a faithful watchman... I can't say, well, you know what? As long as you call yourself a Christian and you know, you're, you're good to go, you're going to heaven. I, I can't in good conscience say that. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, there has to be a change in your life. There has to be some kind of evidence in your life that you are a believer. Now, you're not, the change doesn't mean you're changing to become pleasing to God. It's just a result of a changed life. You've been drastically transformed. You're a new creation in Christ. Well, your life should reflect that. 
And if your and my life doesn't reflect that, if we're practicing, now I fall into sin, I, I commit sin, but praise God for First John 1 9. You know, if I can if I if I sin, if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me. But if I practice that sin with no intentions of repenting, I think you're on dangerous ground. Will you lose your salvation? I'm not saying that. But I am saying maybe you better examine whether you really are a believer or not. It's interesting, the watchmen in that day, in Ezekiel's day, they stood three shifts. You, there wasn't one guy that stood there 24 hours a day. Could you imagine if that was your job 24 hours a day? you go nuts. They were rotated out when their time was finished, and they were replaced by someone who took their turn on the wall, someone who had fresh eyes, was rested, and, and ready to, to stand watch and, and be good at standing watch, faithful in standing their watch. And as believers in this generation, I think it's now our turn to stand watch to get on that wall, you know, we look at a gathering storm on the horizon. We need to be warning people about what's coming. I was reading, I don't know if you ever look at, it's called Debka, D-E-B-K-A. It's a, it's a website, it's a Jewish website. And I go there sometimes to look at what's happening from a Jewish perspective. Because, you know, you can read news about, you know, Fox News or these different news things and find out what the U.S. perspective is. But it's interesting to find out what the Jewish people say. In the Jewish, if you go to that website, they have articles, uh, political articles, and uh, they talk about uh, the, pre- the president of France. Uh, he's, a, he's a socialist, and yet he's one of the guys that stood up with this this, uh, this thing that was going on where the, where the U.S. is trying to make an agreement with uh, Iran about nuclear weapons. And it, they were almost ready to sign this agreement, and, and France backed out of it, and, and that kind of upset the whole thing, and so now they're going to revisit again. Well, apparently, right now, this president of, of France is, is in Israel, along, and they're meeting with the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and uh, maybe one other country. But they are all trying to join a pact together in Israel to stand up against the United States and what the U.S. is doing. That blows my mind. Because there was one time when the U.S. was a staunch ally of Israel. And now we've got these other nations. And, they, and in this article, they talk about how the U.S. was, everybody looked to the U.S. And now that there's a void there. And so these other nations are like, well, we gotta, we got to stop it, Iran from getting weapons. I mean, even the other Arab nations are afraid of Iran having nuclear weapons. And so they're like, we got to do something about it. Um, and, and you look at that and you go, wow. That, I mean, that's the first time in recent history that we've pulled away the way we have. And all I can say is, man, that, that just, it, it's setting the stage for, I believe, the end of the end times. I think we're so close to it. And when we get to the end of Ezekiel, I think we'll, we'll be reading it like we're reading in the newspaper, basically. And so there is a storm cloud coming. And you and I are watchmen. And we're to be warning this generation about a coming judgment. We're to be warning our fellow brothers and sisters that are not walking with the Lord, hey, you know what? <laughs> you need to get right with the Lord. We need to be doing those things. Verse 22. 
Then the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So I arose and went out into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. There again, he sees God's glory, and he's back on his face on the ground. The guy probably had like a flat nose or a bloody nose. You know, it's always boom, hitting the ground all the time. Verse 25, And you, O son of man, surely they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. Basically, God's saying, hey, the people are going to try to prevent you from prophesying among them. Verse 26, I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and not be one to rebuke them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord God, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Here God is basically telling Ezekiel, I'm not going to let you speak on your own initiative. I'm going to silence you. You're not going to just be able to talk except when you hear my words. Then you're to speak them to the people. So only when God speaks and only what God speaks. Boy, I tell you, I wish that was a description of my life, (laughs) you know. That the only time that, you know, I just spoke with the Lord. And so often I say things and I'm like, why did I say that? You know, it just, uh, you know, it's like I, I can't take it back. I said it and I wish I hadn't said it and stuff. But if I would only speak when I hear God speaking, man, that, that'd, be, that'd be great. Well, back in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord. In chapters 2 and 3 here, now we hear, he hears the word of the Lord commissioning him as a prophet. Now, starting in chapter 4, Ezekiel's prophecies are going to begin. And I think you're going to find out something interesting. Some of his prophecies are going to be with words. He's speaking to people. But a lot of his prophecies, he's not going to be saying a word. But he's going to be living out things that is going to speak volumes to the people around them. And that really should describe our lives as well. God's going to use Ezekiel's life itself to speak to God's people. And you're going to be amazed as we go through this book, some of the things that God's going to have Ezekiel do. It's, it's, it's going to blow your mind. You know, I, I've, I've come across people in my, in my walk as a Christian that, you know, they're like, oh, I'm a prophet of the Lord, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. And it's almost like it's a status thing or something you really desire. I want to be a prophet of the Lord. Well, if you look at what Ezekiel's life was as a prophet, I don't think it would be something like, I want to be a prophet, you know. He's going to be doing some really strange things. He's going to go through some very incredible hardships for the Lord. And yet, Ezekiel's name means God strengthens. God's going to strengthen him. God's going to equip him and uh, allow him to do by his Holy Spirit. God's going to enable Ezekiel to fulfill his calling. And for you and I as believers this morning, if God calls you to something, if he tells you, maybe the Lord's been laying something on your heart, and you go, man, I just don't know if I could do that. Yeah, you can't do it in your own strength. But if you would just submit to the Holy Spirit and allow him to do it, he will enable you to do those things that God calls you to. So why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.